Patients frequently experience financial loss, pain, and disability as a result of medical errors. And it's widely believed that the threat of legal sanctions creates incentives for providers to be more careful and to invest in safety. But the medical malpractice system may also push physicians to practice defensively and adopt approaches to care that are not cost effective. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with David Studdert, a professor of health policy at the Stanford University School of Medicine and a professor at Stanford Law School. As part of the journal series on the fundamentals of health law, Dr. Studdert has co-authored a perspective article about medical malpractice law. Dr. Studdert, you write in your perspective article that physicians are sued for negligence more than any other professional group. So why do you think that's the case? Negligence law is focused primarily on physical injuries. That's not its exclusive focus, but that is its chief focus. And the rules around tort law, which were set up in the late 1800s and early 1900s, primarily focused on physical injury. Now, as far as professions go, there's lots of room for negligence in every profession, from engineers to accountants and indeed to lawyers. But the results of errors in those professions tend not to be physical injuries. They may be financial loss, they may be reputational damage, but they're not physical injuries. Medicine is a hazardous enterprise, and one of its hazards is physical injury. So this brings physicians and hospitals squarely within the focus of tort law generally and professional liability specifically. What are the conditions under which a plaintiff can successfully sue a physician for malpractice, and what makes these cases challenging for courts? So there are four essential elements to a tort claim, and this is true of all tort claims, not just professional liability claims, but I'll center my response to you in the context of professional liability, since that's the focus of this piece. The first thing a plaintiff needs to prove, and all of the burdens fall to the plaintiff, the defendant can do nothing in these claims and just simply allow the plaintiff to try to prove his or her case. But the first element is that the plaintiff must show that the defendant had a duty to the patient, that they owed them a duty of care. Now, in the context of healthcare, that's usually a given. In fact, the physician-patient relationship is sometimes held up as the kind of classic dutiful relationship. The second element is the plaintiff or the patient must show that the physician fell below the standard of care expected. And in the context of medical malpractice, that standard is going to be determined by customary practice, what the defendant's peers do in the normal circumstances. The third is that the patient or plaintiff must show that there's an injury, there's actual harm that has been caused to the patient as a result of the negligence. And finally, there has to be that causal relationship between the negligence and the injury. The injury can't have been due to some other factor that wasn't specifically related to the negligence. It's hard for a plaintiff to prove those things in a medical malpractice case. And indeed, the majority of claims do not result in success and damages for the patient. One of the really hard things is proving that there is a causal relationship between anything the physician might have done erroneously and the harm the patient suffered. The other that can be very difficult is establishing that the physician fell below the standard of care. Again, this is a customary determination. The court will look to what a physician's peers normally do in this situation. And as we know, there's tremendous variation in medical practice across the United States. So it may be sufficient for a defendant to simply point to similar practices in certain parts of the country, and that will exonerate them. 
You write in your article that a sizable proportion of malpractice claims and paid claims involve missed or delayed diagnoses. So what are other common reasons that patients file these malpractice claims? So apart from missed and delayed diagnoses, many malpractice claims involve injuries that are alleged to have been suffered in surgical care. The operating room is the common sort of locus of concerns about malpractice. Other claims involve concerns about the informed consent process. Still others involve medication injuries, adverse drug events and the like. In addition, obstetrics has been a very common area of malpractice claims, and indeed some of the most expensive claims occur in that area. But they're really the leading categories of claim, missed and delayed diagnoses, obstetrical errors, adverse drug events, and surgical errors. So looking at care delivery more broadly, how does the threat of being sued affect physicians' decision-making? The theory is that taught more and the threat of malpractice suits encourages healthcare providers to be more careful, to establish systems for safe care, to pay extra special attention to this hazarded enterprise that they're engaged in. In fact, we have very little evidence that that's the case. It's very hard to find strong so-called deterrent signals emanating from the tort system. And that's an issue because one of the founding rationale for the tort system and malpractice liability is that it is able to provide those safety signals. What we do see, and what has been measured reasonably well, is that it provokes a different kind of response among care providers. And that response is to take steps and engage in measures that don't necessarily improve quality of care, but help deflect and protect against possible lawsuits, so-called defensive medicine. Defensive medicine is a bad thing because it doesn't improve patient care and it boosts costs. Indeed, a very large fraction of the total expenditures attributed to the medical malpractice system are in the form of defensive medical practice. So you might think of defensive medicine as sort of deterrence gone awry. And indeed, it seems to be a substantial problem in the American healthcare system. Nonetheless, according to available data, the number of paid claims against physicians has decreased substantially in the past 20 years. So what are the possible explanations for this trend? This is a really remarkable trend. Over the last 20 years or so, it appears, based on the best data that we have, that the number of paid claims against physicians has decreased by 75%. Now, only about a third of claims are paid. We don't exactly know what's happening to claims overall, which is to say claims that aren't paid. But I think that's a fairly reliable indicator of where the total claims volume is at. I wish it were true that this signaled some very positive developments, such as major improvements in quality of care over the last 20 years, or perhaps the fact that greater openness with patients about unexpected outcomes of care is really having an effect on chilling interest in filing lawsuits. But I don't think that either of those developments are really plausible explanations for what we're seeing in this trend line. I think a much more likely possibility is that the waves of tort reform that we've seen across the last 30 years are steadily gaining traction. Now, tort reforms are measures enacted by state legislatures that are intended to reduce the scale and the cost of tort litigation. The classic tort reform is a cap on non-economic damages. That has the effect of reducing the value of claims and therefore their attractiveness to plaintiff's attorneys. It's simply harder for a patient to find an attorney willing to take their claim. Studies of the effect of these reforms suggest actually fairly modest effects on claims frequency. So 
that raises some questions about whether this really is the explanation for what's going on. But I think it may be time to take another look at that research and conduct further research because this really is a most remarkable trend line. It was always an uphill climb for patients who were injured by care to get recovery, and I think it's getting harder. Finally, you do write that the medical malpractice system hasn't undergone innovative reform and that it's been largely disconnected from efforts to improve the quality and safety of patient care. So what types of changes could make the system fairer and mitigate these negative effects? It's a great question and one that my group has been thinking about for many years. I think part of the way in which the malpractice system fails patients and doctors is that it's pretty imprecise. It's hard for physicians to get from the medical malpractice system, clear indications of what they're supposed to be doing in terms of adhering to acceptable standards. And it's really hard for patients who are injured by medical care to get recovery, even when that medical care has been negligent. Indeed, the vast majority of patients who experience adverse events due to negligence do not recover a penny in damages. And they simply absorb the costs of that loss in their lives, which can be very damaging. What we've suggested over the years is that a less adversarial system, something more aligned to workers' compensation, where there was easier mechanisms for patients to access compensation when they're injured, less adversarialism, less combativeness, less destructiveness to the doctor-patient relationship. I don't think a system like that would be less expensive, but it should be possible to moderate the cost of the system by not including these large jackpot awards, but simply trying to meet the economic losses of patients who suffer injury. That's one possibility. I think another possibility is to look carefully at the guidelines that many learned societies have promulgated and try to see if we can align those better with what we're asking of physicians in relation to medical malpractice. Thank you, Dr. Studdard.